Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm John Henry Smith, sitting in for Lucy Nalpathatchel. Today I'll be playing for you an interview I recorded last week with former Connecticut State Department of Public Health Commissioner Renee Coleman-Mitchell. She is suing the state in the wake of her May 2020 firing by Governor Ned Lamont. She says not only did members of his administration racially discriminate against her during her 13 months on the job, but also that their dismissiveness of her warnings led to a poor initial response from the Lamont administration against the pandemic. Later in the show, CT News Junkie Editor-in-Chief Christine Stewart will join me to react to what Renee Coleman-Mitchell had to say. You can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live to share a comment. And now, my talk with Renee Coleman-Mitchell. Renee, is your ire in the way you were treated more directed at Governor Lamont himself or with members of his administration who may have been in his ear? I actually say the entire administration. Why? Because there were specific members of his administration that were given direct um, authority to do what they do in terms of conducting business. But at the same time, when you're in a leadership role, in which I have been uh, for most of my professional career, I can imagine, John Henry, you can think that the buck stops with the leadership and how they should know and be aware of what is taking place among their administration and their extended staff. And so the responsibility is duly set upon the entire administration, Governor Lamont, um, his chief of staff, and also uh, Josh Cabal, who he put in charge of the COVID-19 response for the state of Connecticut. Soon after COVID began hitting our national consciousness in March of 2020, the governor hired Boston Consulting Group for $2 million to advise on the COVID response. He formed this commission of medical and business leaders to help out as well. He set out Josh Jabal and or Yale's Matthew Carter as the public face of government's response at times. Lamont later replaced you with Deidre Gifford. Now, which elevation of a voice or of voices over yours uh, in the response to COVID do you point to as particularly egregious? All of them. One being is that when the governor appointed Josh Cabal, who is a white male with no public health experience, training, or degree in regards to addressing public health or any background in public health in the realm of the lead in Connecticut's response to COVID-19 was absolutely egregious for which it played itself out. And we can speak about that further. Secondly, uh, when he put in place Dr. Gifford, who is the uh, commissioner for the Department of Social Services. Um, Again, the lack of the public health training, specifically um, in comparison to my 30 years of public health training on education and direct hands-on experience uh, was egregious. It was egregious 
to put someone with absolutely no experience training at all, or even understanding of the communities in Connecticut, as well as the fact of having someone who was another uh, commissioner from another state agency oversee their response to the Department of Public Health addressing this because the Department of Public Health and the Department of Social Services have very two distinct roles in regards to nursing homes and the two shall never meet only because the Department of Social Services sets rates. We at the Department of Public Health were responsible for the quality of care but also the monitoring and the sanctions that came along with it. And as you can imagine, to, to put those two together would be a, a conflict of interest. And so it's unfortunate that the commissioner from the Department of Social Services is over, was over the Department of Public Health's actions and steps in regards to responding to COVID-19. You mentioned nursing homes just a moment ago. Let's 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 stick with that for a second. Critics, they've associated your office with the state's actions that may have led to an inordinate amount of COVID deaths in nursing homes. There was particular criticism over how long it took to get testing at the nursing homes. Uh, from, what I, from what I remember, it took a couple of months to start testing in those homes, and then only staff got the test, not residents at first. Uh, I've read and heard you say the Lamont administration disregarded your advice. Please expound. Okay, that is absolutely true. The first week in March, there was a national call, as you may recall. Uh, Vice President Pence had a conference call with all public health commissioners from all states here in the U.S. During that time, we were given the information as to what was happening with the two nursing homes in the state of California and the state of Washington. And it was horrific what they shared with us. And hanging up on that call, and I believe that call was March 2nd or 3rd of 2020, I knew based on my experience in terms of public health, that the first thing we had to do was to mitigate as much as we could in regards to the risk that our nursing home residents and staff were about to be addressed. Now, keep in mind that on a daily basis, being the commissioner, we had at that time 215, I believe, or 217 nursing homes. We were given daily reports of the, the COVID-19 entering the nursing homes and the impact that it had, the number that were infected, the number of individuals that were dying. And it was every day, several nursing homes being impacted in the most negative way possible. So I knew once we hung up on that call that I had to sound the alarm to our administration, as well as my staff, that we must take steps to address the nursing homes immediately, meaning only keep it where we had the staff that had to be at that facility to serve the clients, whether it be the healthcare staff, the, the, the um, maintenance staff, and the administration staff, but also we had to do testing of our residents and all the staff, and we had to cut down visitations because it was understood once it entered the nursing homes, it would spread like wildfire, and it was very little that you can do. So our, my goal was to communicate to our administration that we had to restrict all visitation immediately and start testing. And anyone that was positive in terms of residents, separate them from all other 
residents of nursing homes and staff as much as we could test them, but also mitigate those efforts in regards to any staff that were positive. When that information was shared with the governor's administration, it was not taken with any type of heed or any type of them listening to me at all. The response was, you can't do that. And I explained to the administration, administration, yes, I can, as a public health commissioner with the statutes being that this is a public health emergency, I can declare such and take the steps to restrict visitations based on Connecticut general statutes. And they told me that, again, you cannot do that. Uh, what are families and friends going to say that they cannot have any, see their, their relatives or their friends? Was there anyone in particular saying that? It was the legal counsel, the legal counsel that has been assigned to the governor's administration. Um, and it was also, my communication would always be um, with Josh Cabal and Paul Mounds. So all the administration that I spoke to were not willing to support me in my decision to shut down the visitation at the nursing homes. I had to bypass those individuals I just shared. And then I had to call the governor myself and implore him that this is of the utmost urgency that we respond immediately because time is of the essence. And from the moment that I called the governor, which I believe was on March 5th till March 16th, there was no activity and during that time, as I shared with you, nursing homes were then becoming infected with COVID-19 and deaths were occurring needlessly during that approximate two and a half, three week period. What was the governor's executive order number 7NN? As I understand it, it paid nursing homes $600 a day to take COVID positive patients in. That was a decision that was made by the commissioner for the Department of Social Services, along with others in, in making that is correct, Commissioner Gifford. And that really was a conversation because some of the nursing homes, as you can imagine, John Henry, that they were very, very concerned about accepting or having anyone positive in their facility because they knew that it would spread like wildfire for what we were seeing already in existing nursing homes that had COVID. And so they also said, secondly, that there was more of the um, skilled nursing that was needed in regards to care for patients with COVID-19. Because again, it be also became these comorbidities, co-illnesses that these particular residents at highest risk were dealing with. And so that it would need to have uh, a different amount attached to it in terms of reimbursement uh, to entice the nursing homes to comply with accepting positive patients for COVID. As I understand it, there was the USS Comfort Navy Hospital ship moored in Long Island Sound, uh, the Hartford Convention Center. It was set up as a makeshift hospital. In retrospect, should more folks, instead of nursing homes being paid $600 to take COVID-positive patients, were those avenues explored and utilized enough? So how I will answer that is that, again, during this entire couple of months, what I was trying to tell the administration was completely ignored. And they went forward in using some of the staff at the Department of Public Health 
without even advising or letting me know and setting up what you shared just now is beds statewide for the perceived and planned surge. There were over 8,000 beds that were set up around the state of Connecticut. In the meantime, while they were doing that, I was working with the nursing homes, some of the staff in regards to getting everyone tested, bedside testing, getting the staff and the residents testing, working then to make sure that we restricted visitations, but also working with the Charter Oak Community Health Center. And then all that started with them doing a beta test and we saw the positive nature of the number of clients coming through the Community Health Center, which is comprised mainly of our brown and black community members, underserved community. And what ended up happening is I was working with them to have mobile testing set up through all the state's community health centers through a mobile van using the National Guard and some of the staff at the community health centers. When I was able to come back with the stats to show that there is a great number of positive individuals in these underserved communities throughout the state that we need to address our concerns in this arena as well, and I have data to prove such, while I was trying to work with the community health centers and the nursing homes regarding COVID-19 and our response to address the needs of those particular communities, there was over 8,000 beds that were set up. To note, none of those 8,000 beds were ever utilized in response to COVID-19. And when I was able to present the data that showed that there were high COVID numbers in our communities with the nursing homes, as well as our underserved communities, all efforts transferred over to the mobile units that I had set up. So the bottom line being is that when I was able to present the data for the COVID-19 in these underserved communities and the nursing homes, all efforts were ceased in regards to setting up over the 8,000 beds that were never used in the state of Connecticut. And all efforts then were turned to the nursing homes specifically and to the mobile testing that was taking place at the community health centers around the state. As a matter of fact, I was sent a text from the governor himself and his chief of staff, Paul Mounds, commending me for my efforts with the mobile van and the nursing home efforts that I was doing, separate from what everyone else was doing regarding setting up the 8,000 beds. To date, those 8,000 beds, none of them were used for the perceived surge that was to occur. When When did you get that note? Days before I was terminated. Days? Before I was fired. Days. The, oh gosh, I don't have the exact date. I would have to look back at my records. It's just in ballpark. Oh gosh, March, April. So I'm going to say about April is when we did the beta analysis testing at Charter Oak Health Center with the president CEO, Nichelle Mullins. She and I worked very closely together and we had uh, nine individuals that turned up COVID-19 positive from the community that came in. I shared that data. I contacted the governor myself and said, Governor, these are the results of about 20 plus so individuals being tested for COVID. Nine came back positive. This is with the mobile unit at a community health center. And that's when all efforts were switched over to working and having the mobile vans go out to the community health centers, as well as working with the nursing homes and the testing. 
I understand that the governor has hired uh, Mathematica policy research for about $450,000 to conduct a review of the state's response to COVID-19, particularly in nursing homes and assisted living facilities. Have they interviewed you? No, they did not. I will tell you that if you do due diligence, many of the individuals early on in terms of the task force, the companies that were brought on, all were brought on with not so much the experience in dealing with pandemics or public health crises, but it was based on who knew who. So BCG, if you were to do your homework, you will find why they were brought on. Mathematica, there was a connection there. And they, when they came on board and all that money, millions were spent, they were uh, sharing the fact that they would interview everyone who had been involved with COVID. They did not extend that invitation to interview me at all. And are, are, you, are you at all worried that because they haven't interviewed you that maybe you could be a target? Does that concern you? Uh, hello, I'm already, I've already been a target. When the nursing home deaths occurred, when they occurred at a surmountable amount, keep in mind, in general, the statistics in the state of Connecticut, approximately 60% of the deaths in the state of Connecticut have occurred in the nursing home settings. And if you were to break it down even more and look at it racially and ethnically, you will see that there proportionally is a higher number of brown and black and brown individuals from our communities in Connecticut that are disproportionately have died of due to COVID. So when these questions came about from residents and constituents to their political leaders, political leaders went to the governor's office and were questioning what is going on and why. Mind you, I have been working with a lot of them and the finger was pointed at me as the public health commissioner not doing her job. That's former Connecticut State Department of Public Health Commissioner Renee Coleman-Mitchell speaking with me last week about her lawsuit against the state of Connecticut. A note that a spokesperson for Governor Ned Lamont told me that no one from the Lamont administration would be offering a comment on Coleman-Mitchell's remarks. Former Chief Operating Officer Josh Jabal told me via email that he also would be refraining from comment. And a spokesperson for Commissioner Deidre Gifford said she would not be commenting, citing the pending litigation. After the break, hear more of my interview with Renee Coleman-Mitchell. You can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I'm John Henry Smith. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. 
This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm John Henry Smith. We continue now with my conversation with former Connecticut State Department of Public Health Commissioner Renee Coleman-Mitchell. She is suing the state in the wake of her May 2020 firing by Governor Ned Lamont after just 13 months on the job. You can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Where We Live. Renee, did all of your issues begin before the pandemic crisis during the debate about religious exemptions when you released school data on vaccination showing that over 100 schools didn't have the 95% herd immunity to measles, mumps, and rubella? Uh, is it true, as has been uh, alleged, that you released the data before the governor made it clear he wanted the data released? And, and, and is that the pro- it, it, did, did everything kind of emanate from that? No, let me tell you factually what took place. Um, I was appointed April 1st as the commissioner. Um, April, the month of April, the month of May, um, I was presented by my to my by my staff to me regarding the religious exemption, but also the data in regards to whether or not we, for the first time in history in the state of Connecticut, should release school uh, data regarding vaccination rates. And I really gave it great thought did my own uh, research. And one of the biggest things that needs to be determined and said is that I looked at it from the perspective that if any child at any given point dies for the lack of having vaccines or not having this information, that that would be the responsibility that I would have to take. And so I made the decision for the first time in history in the state of Connecticut to have school vaccination rates released per school districts in the state of Connecticut. That was my decision along with my staff to have that done. My decision as a public health commissioner. So when that was released, we were able to see and gain knowledge that there were pockets of communities in the state of Connecticut that did, that had very low vaccination rates. And what that did was educate people. That's part of public health, right? Is to educate the public but also to take action accordingly. And what it ended up doing was giving a lot of information to our our residents here in the state and a lot of parents who have children who have imminent compromised systems, who have health conditions, and to make decisions on behalf of their children's health about what schools they should or should not attend. But it also brought up topics about the issue of vaccinations and religious exemptions. The religious exemptions became part of the political arena in the state of Connecticut. So when the data had to be re-released in the fall for the school year, our department is responsible for working with school districts, collecting that information and working that data so that it is clean and that there's not raw data. When I received the call from the media individual, and I forgot his name, the, the, the journalist, He asked me, will you release that information? And what I said to him specifically and factually is that we cannot release this data at this time because the staff are still collecting data from outstanding school districts as well as analyzing the data before we present it and put it on our website. That reporter then called the governor's office and the governors and was, was and I'm not sure what they were told, 
or what was stated, but the governor's office made the statement, of course, we're going to release this data. We always had the intention to release that data. I made the decision as a commissioner for the first time in history to release it in April. So why wouldn't I do it again? And so when you say we, you mean you and the governor? Correct. And the media took that, put a twist on it, and made it and implied and inferred as if the governor and I were at odds in regards to the release of school-based data. And what you're not hearing me say is that I was the one as the commissioner for the first time in the history in the state of Connecticut to make the decision to have vaccine, vaccine immunization rate data released per school districts. I made that decision okay. back in April. And it had to be released again for the new school year. But we had to get all the data in and we had to analyze it before you present it on the website. So and go ahead. For whatever reason, the media twisted that and made it seem and look like we were at odds for the release of that data. And that is not true at all. So I had two key questions, and that's and, and that's certainly an answer to one. So you're saying that any perception that you and the governor were at odds over this is completely not factual. That's that number one, correct. right? Okay. Number two, the other you know question I had of that is, was that perception held by certain members of the administration of the Democratic Party? And when you, as you look back on your time as commissioner of the DPH, do you feel that 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 do you almost feel like the firing was more about that than it was really about any response to COVID? Do you feel like do you feel like once once whatever mis- misunderstandings, misperceptions uh, you say may have happened, do you feel like there, there, there were certain forces lined up against you because of that episode? So what I can tell you is this. I can't speak for the individuals in the administration to accept factually. I do, and I am aware that there were some individuals that were very concerned how the media article articles came out to make it appear that we, the governor and I, were not on the same page in regards to releasing the data. And that is not true, right? And so I'm not, I can't answer as to who the individuals were, but there were concerns. But keep in mind that once it's in print, whether it's true or not, it became solidified in some people's minds that didn't know the truth that this was an issue. I can tell you very specifically, I was fired on May 11th, which was a Monday night. On Wednesday, between 7.10 and 7.30 p.m., the governor called me, we had a conversation, and he said many things, but one of the key things he said that is very specific for what you just asked me, he said, Renee, I always thought we had a good relationship a good working relationship. And I said, Governor, I thought so too. And I said, but unfortunately, the media has painted it differently. And then his words to me were, you were always a class act. And I said, thank you, Governor. That's a portion of the conversation that Governor Lamont and I had. You know, it's interesting to hear you say that because I know that, you know, uh, one of the things that you're unhappy about at this point, is that uh, I understand that you feel the governor made certain promises to you in, in, in leaving, then promises that have not yet been kept, if, as I understand it. Could you expound on that? I can. 
during my conversation with the governor on March 13th, during that evening, he asked me when I answered the phone, how are you? And I said, governor, I am not well. And I explained to him why I wasn't well, because the narrative that was out there on me regarding not acting fast enough with the nursing homes was not true. And he, and I said, and so we have it on a, not only a local state, but a national level, CNN, Rachel Maddow, New York Times, stating that the governor fired me because I did not act fast enough regarding the nursing homes. He immediately cut me off and said, Renee, I never said that. I would never say that. And I said, governor, whether you said it or not, it is out there and that is the narrative. And because it is on a national level and has painted this picture of me, it is going to be difficult for me to get gainful employment. And he said to me, well, what do you want? And I was very specific, three things. My benefits would end at the end of the month of May for myself and my family, a letter of recommendation and employment, right? A severance pay, a severance. He said, okay, who do you want to work with on that? I can have either Josh Cabal or Paul Mounds. In my mind, the lesser of the two evils, I selected Paul Mounds. He said he would talk to Paul and Paul would get back to me. That was on Wednesday. On Friday mid-morning, I text the governor to say I hadn't heard anything from Paul. And he was very surprised. And he said he would speak to Paul immediately. Paul Mounds then contacted me a um, little after you know that uh, interaction via text with the governor. Um, and we spoke and he was very weary of having any further conversation with me if I brought in my counsel. He said this was between he and I, and I had made it very clear. I wasn't comfortable having this conversation with him uh, without having my counsel present due to the fact of what had happened to me regarding May 11th. And prior to that, with all the treatment that I had received from Josh Cabal, um, in usurping my authority as a public health commissioner. So the bottom line is that there was a lot of back and forth from May 15th to the very end of May, 2020, right? In which it resulted in me getting nothing, not a letter of recommendation. My benefits ended, so I got no extension of my benefits and I did not get a severance. Paul Mound stated very um, specifically that there, he, they could not provide a severance because no other commissioners had ever received such a severance. And I said to him in response, it doesn't mean you can't set presidents going forward. And he didn't have really a response to that. As you file this lawsuit, I mean, obviously, you know, there, there is another data point. You have to, you hate to refer to a human being as a data point, but Melissa McCaw obviously left the administration under, under mysterious circumstances uh, after you left. I don't know if, you, if, you, if you've had a chance to consult with Melissa McCaw uh, uh, since her situation, um, but uh, to what degree is that of further evidence of what you're alleging, that there potentially is racism in the Lamont administration? My counsel has said I, I cannot probe and go into that, but I'm well aware of other cases, they happen to be black women in leadership roles in this mm -hmm. current administration that have experienced similar uh, treatment that I have as well. You you had a number of accomplishments. You had, you addressing the opioid epidemic, vaping related injuries, uh, in the response to this terrible thing we've learned about recently called PFAS. Uh, yes. 
has this episode made you question yourself? How's it affected your 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 self image and your ability to make a living? So so imagine having thirty plus years of a blemish free career, that with each and every position you're blessed to be able to be a leader, to promote public health, and to do your best at really serving the needs of the residents or the population, depending on where I was working. I've worked in academia, higher ed, I've worked in government, and I've worked in nonprofit, all in leadership roles, 30 plus years. And to only become the commissioner is like a lifelong dream for any public health official, right? To become the commissioner of the state that you were born and bred and educated in, and to have that honor to serve Connecticut residents and you get in the position to do your best regarding public health, not realizing, in all honesty, the political health aspect that plays more of a role in regards to your job as a public health commissioner. To have that all snatched away when you've done nothing wrong but your job and to do it at its best, and your record in the past has shown that, And then you have this false narrative that follows you for the remaining two years after that May 11th ambush firing on the phone that you thought was going to be a meeting regarding COVID and that you've applied and have been interviewed and have been told for over 20 plus jobs and high leadership roles that you have not gotten, but during the way You've been told you've got too much baggage. Or when I Googled you, I saw we saw too much. You sound like you have great skill set, but it's it's just not worth us pursuing. Or even if you were done wrong, which you probably were, we can't take that risk. And so what it's done on so many levels to my entire family, my husband, my son, and my daughter. They both had to withdraw from their um, apartment. My son had to withdraw from school. Uh, he was at Howard, my, as along with my daughter. He never went back as a result because we didn't have the finances to continue the pursuit for him to continue. We lost all of our insurance, medical and dental benefits insurance. We are now all on Husky. And I have not been able to gain employment to make myself whole as I was. I was making $200,000 a year as a commissioner and prior to that position that I had as well. I have done some consulting here and there, but nothing that will result in having our family back to the position in which it was. My name is splattered across Google and anything you pull up in the media with a negative connotation, not for the good that I've done, in the 13 months, not for the good that I've done for the 30 plus years as a public health official, proudly doing the work in public health, but all that took place because of the way in which I was treated. Within a matter of seconds, I no longer had a livelihood. I had no financial backing for myself and my family. My career was obliterated. And there's others that have done things in my administration that have ended up, that should have been addressed and have been reprimanded, who end up with getting a package with the governor's administration of $45,000. 
and added days to their to their state time so they can get a pension. And they have done some egregious acts in which I've done nothing. And yet here I am speaking to you two years after the fact that I am still no longer employed or have been made whole. So you can only imagine what this has done to me and my family. Now, initially, emotionally, mentally, and financially, it was disarming. It took me back. It took me, I was depressed. I couldn't understand how and why it all happened, how it was all planned out and what took place. But I've become stronger for it in so many ways that I know I did my best. I did nothing egregious. I did no acts. I did the right thing. And at the same time, justice will be done in one way or another. It will be done. And so at this point in my life, I am just appreciative of having the opportunity to speak because what I realized through all of this is that I am not the only one and that I have taken the step to address this publicly. And people need to know. I, I heard a podcast uh, in May 2020 through the Connecticut Mirror. A columnist Mark Pazniokas was one of the people on the podcast, and he and he talked about what he was hearing. He said something to the effect of uh, he was hearing from sources that uh, – there was an idea that you had a total discomfort with the idea, and I'm quoting him here, total discomfort with the idea of being the public voice on the issue of public health. Uh, his intimation is that you didn't sufficiently explain the policy and scientific reasons behind why uh, we should or should not be allowing non-medical immunization exemptions. What do you make of that? You're going to get people making their comments and espousing on what they think but I can clearly, if you ask me the question directly, I can address it and give my public health um, experience using the data and giving my decision about what I would say or do. So I can't literally uh, address what this individual said. It was his or her you know, decision to say what they said, but I am completely dispelling what he stated and that I was not comfortable in making that decision. I shared with you clearly, looking at the data, working with the state uh, epidemiologist and, and his staff, as well as the basic fact of literally thinking, oh my gosh, if someone, if a child in the state of Connecticut dies because they didn't have this information, that is a full responsibility on my shoulders. And yet I am also entrusted with the fact that through the statutory system here in the state, the regulations, this Connecticut general statutes, I have the power to make change in a positive way for residents, then why not do that? You know, at the time that you were let go, uh, you look across the country, There, you weren't the only one across the I country. I was the first of, of over 30 plus public health officials, probably there's more now, right? But yeah, I was the first publicly nationally known to be let go and then there was a series of us all a number of us that were all let go have you all well. been in touch yeah. i mean what do you make of, of of that sort of tsunami yeah let me explain that to you um as a public health commissioner we are all part of what's called the association of state and territorial officials it's uh, an association that's comprised of public health commissioners around the country right, from all states, as well as other public health officials on uh, different levels. And so they have an alumni, alumni association of those of us who no longer are commissioners. And there was such a surplus of us 
that were in my cohort that were either fired, terminated, um, or moved on because of fear for their lives and or their family lives, um, or were just nullified in regards to having a voice regarding public health and the direction they should go. And what we saw is that there was an assault on public health around this country because people wanted answers immediately and wanted a quick fix and not understanding public health and were not willing to take the necessary steps to mitigate what was occurring around the world. And because, and this is my statement alone, because public health has never been seen as the, of the importance that it has because there is public health in everything that we do, everything. There's an aspect of public health. People never saw the importance of it. And so when we tried to speak up and take the lead role for what we've been trained and experienced throughout all of our public health lives, we were ignored and it was taken on a political realm. And if you look, you will see a lot of governors took the leadership role. Some chose to listen and advise and have advisement from their public health commissioners, and many did not. Unfortunately, in the state of Connecticut, our governor chose not to listen to me as the public health commissioner with 30 plus years, instead listened to someone with no background in public health and experience or in training, and therefore missed a wonderful opportunity to mitigate what was going on in the nursing homes early on and to also address what was happening in our underserved communities in the state of Connecticut. She is Renee Coleman-Mitchell, former head of the Department of Public Health here in Connecticut. Thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you. Once again, we note that we reached out to Governor Ned Lamont and the Lamont administration as well as Chief Operating Officer Josh Jabal and to Commissioner Deidre Gifford. Given the pending litigation, they all declined to comment. After the break, CT News Junkie, Editor-in-Chief Christine Stewart joins me with her impressions of Renee Coleman-Mitchell's remarks. You can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm John Henry Smith sitting in for Lucy Nalpodatchel. So far in today's show, you've heard from former Public Health Commissioner Renee Coleman Mitchell about why she's filing a federal discrimination lawsuit against the state. Now, here with reaction to her remarks is CT News Junkie Editor-in-Chief Christine Stewart. And you can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Christine, you covered the Capitol through Coleman Mitchell's 13-month run as commissioner. Your thoughts on what you just heard. What are your major takeaways? Well, it's interesting. I think that um, she did early on, uh, you know, sound the alarm about nursing homes and that we needed to get into nursing homes. But I think at the very beginning of the pandemic, I want to say that it was probably in, you know, late February, early March, that uh, the governor started having these daily press conferences. And Coleman Mitchell 
wasn't necessarily the person who was out in front at these press conferences. For the most part, they had um, Dr. Matthew Carter, who is the epidemiologist with the Department of Public Health, um, making statements uh, for the department. And, you know, this was very early on in the pandemic. So well, this well, is can when, I just jump in there? Because, I mean, I, yeah. think that's, I think that's something that Renee Coleman Mitchell would say is a problem, that she should have been the one front and center. And I'm not sure that necessarily she wanted to be the one front and center. I would say that my experience with her in the you know 13 months that she was public health commissioner um, at a public hearing at the legislative office building, um, she stopped the hearing in order to tell me to stop taking a photo of her. Um, so it felt that from very early on that she didn't want the public limelight, that she didn't want any sort of public attention. So she was okay with sending out her employees um, to be the the front person. And that was what, um, you know, was the general thought at that point. Well, I mean, was, so was her, so you, you, you say from what you have seen, it sounds like you think that she had a, a lack of desire to be that front person. Do you think that the issues with the Lamont administration started with that or did they start somewhere else? No, I think that the issues with the Lamont administration started earlier. Um, you know, uh, it started with the debate over eliminating the religious exemption for childhood vaccines. Um, so, you know, there was every indication that they were going to release for the very first time the school by school data on um on uh, vaccination rates and and how many kids uh, in the school were vaccinated, and then the pretty much the day or two before um, that information was supposed to be released, Renee Coleman Mitchell um, told both me and uh, Mark Pasniokas from the CT Mirror that no, they would not be releasing that information. Um, and so that ran counter to what um, Governor Lamont had desired her to do at that point in time. So. You know, it it seemed that there was a rift um, between her and the governor at that point in time. I mean, she said specifically in Connecticut, we've only had three measles cases so far in 2019. And the last case was in April, given that we haven't had any further measles cases since April. And because immunization rates statewide are above 95%, we will not be releasing immunization rates by school for the 2018-2019 school year at this time. So that plays right into the idea that Ms. Coleman Mitchell and I spoke about that, you know, she said that it was wrongly portrayed that she and the governor were not on the same page. And it sounds like you're saying you see evidence to the contrary. I definitely see evidence to the contrary, that they were they seem to be on opposing sides at that point in time. Um, It ended up that the information ended up being released. um, And so. Uh, you know, the the governor said he is definitely releasing the information and he had the ability to tell her that she needed to release that information. Ms. Coleman Mitchell made assertions about certain people. She talked about Deidre Gifford and, you know, she she uh, parroted my term uh, egregious. Uh, I asked her what was egregious and she said one of the egregious things uh, uh, that happened to her was that Deidre Gifford was put in place uh, in place of uh, of Renee Coleman Mitchell. And one of the things that she pointed to was uh, Deidre Gifford's lack of public health experience. From what you know, how does how, how does that ring? 
Um, it, it rings a little bit untrue. I mean, DJ Gifford does have some experience in public health and also was an OBGYN, um, uh, practicing OBGYN for some time, obviously went over and, and worked more in Medicaid. Um, but at the same time, the uh, two agencies share a role in overseeing nursing homes, which were hit really hard by the COVID-19 pandemic. So Deidre Gifford was part of um, part of these discussions uh, when nursing homes were a concern. One of the things that Ms. Coleman Mitchell went into was that she wanted some of those 8,000 beds that had been set up around the state and plus uh, on that ship that was moored in the Long Island Sound, that she wanted some of the uh, residents of the nursing homes to go to some of those beds. From what I understand, none of those beds were ever actually used. Uh, from what you remember of the situation, is she right? Was she pushing for that and, and did, did no one listen to her? And what do you think about that? I'm not sure if she was pushing for that. It was a really confusing time. It doesn't look like any of those beds were ever used. And I know that there was a dispute. Um, uh, you know, the people who had loved ones in nursing homes at the time didn't want patients with COVID in, in their nursing homes. They And then there was a backlash um, against the administration who wanted to use these four closed nursing homes, reopen them and use them as places to send just COVID patients from other nursing homes. And they would be strategically placed around around the state. Um, And so that seemed to end up not going anywhere. And there seemed to be a lot of moving parts and a lot of arguments. So I can't really say um, necessarily what ended up happening, but it doesn't look like any of the Exterior beds were used and patients were moved uh, within the nursing home um, apparatus at that time. Mrs. Coleman Mitchell at one point infers there's a reason, uh, air quotes, beast at uh, the Boston Consulting Group and Mathematica were hired. Any idea what she's referring to? I don't have any idea what she's referring to. I mean, there were calls very early on um, to review, have an independent review of how the state acted um, uh, regarding COVID-19 and whether they acted fast enough, especially when it came to nursing homes. And so, you know, um, the the two independent groups were hired. One was focused more on reopening the economy. The Mathematica report was focused specifically uh, on nursing homes and what can be done better with um, in infection control also going forward. 15 seconds, your final thought. Um, I think that, you know, I, I'm really interesting, interested to see, see how this turns out. I mean, I really haven't heard much from the administration uh, about this and, and that they just continue to say that they have the mer- most diverse administration um, in history. Thoughts expressed by the governor himself about Renee Coleman Mitchell's situation on this program just a week ago. That is CT News Junkie Editor-in-Chief Christine Stewart. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. And we are out of time. Today's show was produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. I'm John Henry Smith. Thank you so much for listening. 